Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Danielle Marzella Grillo. Uh, our topic today is alopecia, which is hair loss. And she is the owner of TransitionsHairSolutions.com. That's her business. Alopecia is something a lot of women deal with. Uh, It impacts all areas of their lives, from career to relationships, because of the impact on self-esteem. So Danielle, who is a hair loss expert from Transitions Hair Solutions, uh, sees alopecia in her business all the time. So today we're going to be talking about the various types of alopecia, how common it is, and how to find help. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Nice to have you here today. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, alopecia, I know what alopecia is. I'm not sure that everybody knows what the term alopecia, but they know the term hair loss. And hair loss mm-hmm. is kind of a taboo topic. People don't like to talk about their hair loss. And I know it affects not just women, but men and all age groups from children to old age. So uh, perhaps you, well, let's start with hair loss, alopecia, exactly what is it and who does it affect? Okay. Uh, Well, alopecia itself, the word, is a medical term for hair loss. So when someone says they have alopecia, yes, they have hair loss, but what form? When you have uh, another word attached to alopecia like areata or totalis, then that becomes a different diagnosis. So it can affect um, really anybody, uh, men, women, children. Anybody can have um, some form of alopecia uh, depending on what their situation is, whether it's a genetic hair loss, a medically related hair loss, or stress hair loss. There's uh, many different types. Right. Well, we can start, first of all, maybe with uh, the genetic hair loss. But before we do that, Danielle, how big a problem is it? I mean, do you have statistics in terms of how many people are affected by alopecia or hair loss in the United States? Um, there's, it's definitely in the millions. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but there is more people than um, more than what people think. Because they, uh, you know, like you said, we don't talk about it. It's not something that people want to be common knowledge. But there's a lot of people, uh, millions of people that are affected by hair loss. And I always hear, like, a man would say, wow, I didn't realize women experience hair loss. Everyone thinks it's just men, but it's not. It's It could be anybody for various reasons. Well, I, you know, I know in just my own experience with uh, friends and and colleagues and people that I know, particularly, I mean, we're talking about women, but postmenopausal women, don't most of them, because of the lack of, I don't know if it's lack of estrogen or more testosterone, but they begin to suffer from hair loss, like 50% of them or 50% of women who go through menopause suffer from hair loss. Yeah, it's absolutely because of the hormonal changes in the body and age. And as we get older, we definitely lose hair. But certainly for the women, with the hormonal changes in the body, it definitely affects the hair. Well, then let's talk about that group first, because that's a huge group, and it's getting larger and larger with the baby boomers <laughs> becoming uh, going through menopause. Um, and I know that I have a, a big audience in terms of that, women who are listening. So let's how how does that work? How do you why do you suffer? From, you know, let's get more specific. And why do you suffer from hair loss, and what can you do about it if you're going through menopause or postmenopausal women? Well, when when it comes down to a hormonal hair loss in postmenopausal women or even women going through menopause, it's just something that's happening within the body. And some, some women are affected more by it than others. Like some women have, they're more prone to having the hot flashes and things like that. So not everyone experiences it. And some women that have a lot of hair, they'll notice that they have less, but it's not as, um, not as consuming as it is for someone who maybe had thinning hair previously, had already had fine hair. And then they start to notice it after, as uh, we were saying about the whether it's the estrogen, the testosterone, the changes in the body. So it's you can some women go on some type of hormone replacements, and others seek out some sort of hair treatments that would help to retain their hair that they have to try to slow slow it from falling, or that they could even have uh, do treatments that would have their hair be a better quality because sometimes the quality of the hair changes as well. So I know that you suggest uh, one of the things that, you know, I was on your website and one of the things that you do suggest is that first you should get a medical diagnosis for your hair loss, 
find out what that is. And then once you've done that, you would go to someone like yourself or go to your Transitions Hair Solutions to find or solutions to find a solution to deal with the hair loss. Um, yeah, we, so, yeah. Yes, we always, we always recommend someone to visit their um, health professional, whether it's a doctor or dermatologist or whatever um, trusted health provider that they go to for their hair because it's something that, you know, you don't want to just play guessing games because there's so many different factors that can go into why somebody is losing their hair. Somebody can be guessed going through menopause, but it could be something else underlying that they just didn't know before. So it's best that they have blood work done, go through the whole um, history with the doctor as well. And in some cases, uh, it could be a scalp biopsy that would be necessary to have a definitive diagnosis if it's something that, you know, you really want a definitive answer of what type of hair loss it is. So you do know how to go forward to treat it or to manage it or whatever it is that the treatment path would be. Well, so what could some of the underlying causes be? Like in your experience, some of the underlying medical causes, for instance, could vitamin deficiency, can that be one? Or, uh, you know, improper diet? Uh, you know, I'm just sort of guessing, but what are some of the reasons why one would be losing their hair uh, other than, say, going through menopause with a loss of estrogen? All of your guesses are correct. <laughs> it's actually uh, it, 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 very good. <laughs> vitamin deficiencies are, are up there. Uh, most, most women are deficient in vitamin D. Uh, it could be something with the iron level. It could be uh, if someone's having, um, they have a thyroid, a uh, low-functioning or high-functioning thyroid. Um, it's uh, many things like that. Uh, when, and a lot of blood work can determine the levels if they're off, and it could be one of the reasons why they're experiencing the hair loss. It could be uh, definitely diet. There's a lot of people that don't have the best diet in the world because, you know, what goes inside your body is going to, you know, come out. And if you're not nourishing the body, it's no different than your scalp. If you're not putting in the right things to nourish it, then you're going to not have the best result as far as your hair goes. And others could be just an underlying of um, genetics. You know, somebody in the family line that had hair loss, and you're not thinking about that when you're young. As you get older and you start noticing up the pattern, you know, is it a female pattern or male pattern? And then you say, oh, my mom had hair loss or my dad had hair loss. So those are some underlying things of uh, why people start to lose their hair. Well, when you talk about genetics, let's say you had a father who mm-hmm. was bald. Does that mean if you're a woman, you can inherit that? baldness from your father or do you have to, or does it come directly through the female line or how does that work? Well, it's always been said that it's been on the mom's side because that's the, the X chromosome. But, you know, uh, I think in more, it can come from either side. The mother was always the predominant, but there is, if it's in the family line, I believe it's from either side. So, I mean, I know, I know women that have had their fathers that had uh, hair loss and they also experienced hair loss. Um, it could be on both sides. I, and a lot of women that come in say, oh, well, my mom always had fine hair, but nobody, no women in my family had hair loss. But on my father's side, my father, my uncle, my grandmother. So it, when you go down to the whole history of the family, it can be a little more tricky than saying it's just from one side. But it was always said to be from the mother's side. But I think more and more as they, you look into things that can come from either what about children? I mean, you see children who suffer from hair loss or let's say teenagers, for instance, and I know a, a couple uh, cases uh, specifically where, uh, you know, a young man lost his hair like it's 15, 16 years old. Where does that come from? That seems to be a genetic kind of hair loss. It depends on, it does depend on the specific reasons and uh, what was going on with him and his body. Was it a genetic hair loss that just started out young or was it some other form of um, alopecia? Like, for example, was it areata, which is one of the autoimmune issues? Um, alopecia areata is when the, the body attacks its own follicles. It's, uh, it can be a genetic makeup, could be combined with other factors. Sometimes uh, stress can trigger it, but it's not caused by stress. So alopecia areata is when they start to see the spots of hair. And then I've seen this a lot in uh, teens. I'm in, uh, younger than teens as well. But in my, in my office, we've seen a lot of uh, less young girls and a lot of young men in the teen age, the teenage group. And uh, 
they start with the areata, and then some of them, unfortunately, progress into a more advanced form of areata, which is totalis, and then the most advanced form of the universalis, when they lose all hair, all body hair, lashes, all of it. So it's, uh, it's just, it's one of those, um, it's an autoimmune uh, issue, and it's, there's not a pinpoint of the cause, and of course there's treatment, but it's, it's, being, it's always uh, something that's being further researched because it's just one of those things that when you see kids, you know, kids suffering from something, not that you want anyone to, but you think of teenagers going through their teen years, which can be hard, as we know, anyway, but going through it with hair loss is just such a sort of devastating. Yeah, I was going to say it has to be devastating for a teenager. I think it's devastating, as you say, even for adults. But as a teenager, with all the other stuff, even if every hair is in place, if, if you're suffering from that, it, it really does have to be devastating. So in your case, what would you do? What do you do? Do you get referrals from physicians or do you get referrals from, you know, healthcare providers who will refer, let's say, teenagers to you? And then what do you do about it? How do you help them? Well, I, I absolutely get referrals from uh, other uh, health care professionals because sometimes when they're going through their treatments, there's certain treatments they can do, and then there's at some point that if they don't want to go through the treatment anymore because it's it's the thing that doesn't cure it, doesn't, there isn't a cure for it. So that's the unfortunate thing. It could be stalled or slowed, and sometimes the treatment works, and sometimes it doesn't. So when it doesn't, and even if someone is going through treatment, they don't want to walk around with the spots or with a you know bald head, even though some of them look wonderful, but they're just not secure enough to do so. So if they would come to me with um, Areata Totalis Universalis, that I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to do a scalp treatment, you know, treatment on you, because it's not, it's not going to do anything. At that point, I would fit them for a cranial prosthetic, um, a hair and scalp prosthetic that can mimic their own hair and something that can stay on, something that they can be secure with and just go out in public and stand tall and go through their teenage years, their high school, and uh, just feel themselves again. So that's what we do for them because they want to basically have their hair back, uh, even if it's growing back underneath or if it's not. But for the time that they don't have the hair, we're able to produce something for them that just makes them look and feel whole again in their minds. And when you see them walk in sad and you see them walk out standing tall and happy, I mean, there's there's no better feeling than when you see them smiling. That's that's the best. <laughs> and it, well, it sounds like it. But Dan, and also, Danielle, what happens? How long does it take that whole process to to do to be able to do that to provide that treatment? I mean, it, well, what happens is they'll come in, and we discuss what their lifestyle is and what it is that they're looking to do, and then what we come next would be a fitting. We would do the um, moldings of their head and to get all the precise measurements so it fits them perfectly, and then it's about. It would take about 12 weeks for it to come in. So uh, once it does come in, we put it on. Uh, we have them, it depends on how they want to do something of a daily attachment or something that would be a more permanent, like four to six weeks. And a lot of them opt for four to six weeks because they want to be able to, to play sports and swim and shower and surf and do all these things. So around 12 weeks, and then they would come in, have it put on. And then about every four to six weeks from there, they would come in for a service to have it removed and cleaned, just as if you would come in to have your hair cut, you know, once a month or have your hair colored or um, something like that. Now, what about another reason? Obvi- this is a obvious one. Uh, people, lose, men and women and children and adults lose their hair as a result of chemotherapy. Or, so that mm-hmm. must be another large or huge area of, of people that or demographics that you treat. Yes. We have a lot of people, unfortunately, that are going through uh, chemotherapy and they do, they come in because they want to, um, like some people are fine. Like I said, some people are fine to go, go full blow the hair completely. And, uh, others, they just, you know, I, what I've seen with a lot of people that are undergoing chemotherapy is that they want to, they don't want people to feel bad for them. They want to go lead, go, go through their treatment, but they want to go to work. They want to do their normal activities and they don't, uh, they don't want to be looked upon as, the sick person. They want to look like themselves. They want to feel like themselves. You know, it's bad enough for going through something. When they look in the mirror, they want to see someone that resembles themselves. So 
they choose to do something normally because they want to feel themselves again. And I find a lot of the men and women that come in and have uh, the prosthetic or uh, chemotherapy, it, it changes their whole attitude. And I think positivity helps them in their treatment. And I've seen such a difference in people that it uh, puts um, like a pep in their step and they really, they start to feel really positive and, you know, that they're, they're going to get through this, you know. And I think it helps them a lot uh, psychologically and just go to go through the unfortunate event that we're going through. It would seem to me that along with your business in terms of helping to restore hair loss or uh, one of the things would be in tandem would be, you know, as a social worker, I'm thinking about this, but be in, in counseling, especially maybe, I don't know about especially, but like children and, and uh, needing or young people needing a support system. Uh, do, do you work closely or with other uh, therapists uh, while? There are, you know, yes. Yeah. Yes, actually, some of them have their own therapists that they, you know, prefer to go to. But we do, uh, there is a foundation that I do belong to. Um, I support them because I think it's great. It's the National Alopecia Areata Foundation. They do a lot with kids, and they have their conference once a year. And I think, because we, I usually attend, and it, they have, like, the camps for the kids, and all the kids there have uh, alopecia, and they just make friends, and they're all, they're all the same, you know, they're like, oh, there's someone else like me. Uh, I think that they, they have a fantastic time. Sometimes they wear their hair and sometimes they don't. They run around and they're just, they're, they're kids and they're just playing like kids. Um, you know, I have a, a client who, a woman who has uh, alopecia totalis and now so does her daughter who is uh, eight and they have gone to the conference and her daughter's very, very, um, she's very strong and she's such a confident little girl. Uh, but her mom was telling me that she had just more recently been going through a period of, you know, a little bit of uh, being insecure, which is unlike her. So she did bring her to the conference that year just to get her grounded again. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful. And they have support groups and things like that. There's a lot of online support groups as well. And it's just that people like to know that they're not the only one. I think support groups are wonderful. Those are some of the best kinds of therapy or counseling that one can get. As you say, just knowing that other people have the same issues and you can discuss what those issues are and, and, and feel comfortable and open. And I would imagine that, unfortunately, some of you know kids who lose their hair are subject to bullying, all kinds of things like that. Um, I have another question. What about stress? Does stress cause hair loss? Can it? We've covered quite a few. I mean, we've covered cancer and autoimmune, menopause, uh, hereditary. All of these are reasons that people lose their hair. But can you actually lose your hair from and, and caused by stress? Stress is yeah. something that can exasperate hair loss. Would it be a sole cause of hair loss? Not necessarily, but stress-related hair loss is quite common, and it, it does have, stress does have an effect on the hair as well as the body. Stress can just wreak havoc on body. So, yes, it can contribute to the hair loss for sure. Okay. So now, what do we do? We, I mean, we only have a few minutes left. So mm-hmm. are there any of solutions that, that we've left out that one, or any diagnoses that we've left out or other reasons for having hair one having hair loss? Uh, that's the first question, I guess. And then what can we do about it? And then I guess next, maybe some of the websites that we can go to uh, that would be helpful to people who are suffering from hair loss. So those are three questions. Okay. Uh, well, first I would say there there are other forms of, uh, you know, hair loss. There's um, intelligent effluvium when somebody goes through a stressful situation or they're going through, uh, just have had a surgery or um, they've gone through, uh, after uh, someone has given birth to a child and it's usually about three months after the event, there's a huge shed of hair loss. That hair loss, that is not permanent and that will come back. That will come back on its own. There are, you know, treatments like psychological treatments that we also provide to help to get the scalp in a better, um, a better environment, nourishing the scalp for the hair to come back a little faster, but it will come back. So that's something that always makes people feel good to know that their hair will come back. <laughs> there is other forms of hair loss, uh, cicatricial alopecia, which is a scarring alopecia. There's many different uh, reasons for that. There's different conditions because of it. Um, also, 
uh, scarring alopecia can be when someone has had uh, a radiation to their head for a brain tumor, something like that. There could be a scarring alopecia where the hair will not come back, and they would then opt for a cranial prosthetic, partial cranial prosthetic. So there are those things as well. Um, as far as the other questions, uh, where would someone go? What, what, what would we offer? Like I said, we would offer them the hair and scalp prosthetic. We do do trichological treatments, which is, again, to uh, take care of the hair and the scalp. Very important for to have the best environment for hair growth, to uh, treat the scalp well. People always worry about the skin on their face but not their scalp. So we do... We, we do hair, uh, non-surgical hair loss um, remedies from A to Z for whatever the reasoning of the hair loss is. Uh, as far as uh, other websites and things like that, I mean, for people, like I said, about the Alopecia Areata Foundation is uh, wonderful. They, uh, the, they have their website. I believe it's uh, NAAF, National Alopecia Areata Foundation, .org. Uh, there is another good um, a good group for people experiencing the secretricial scarring alopecia, which is CARP. It's the Secretricial Alopecia, alopecia Research Foundation. Um, and they have a lot of information regarding the scarring alopecia there. It's a great research foundation, always looking for uh, treatments and answers to try to help out the people that have that, that form of hair loss. Um, and, so there's yeah. a lot of information out there. And your website, which I will mention again, is transitionshairsolutions.com. Now, you're located yeah. where? In New Jersey? Yes, I'm in Wall Township, New Jersey. So, in other words, if we want a treatment, we need to go to, you have, I, I assume, one brick-and-mortar place. I'm making that assumption. I, I don't have, know. I actually yeah. have two. I expanded. I do have two now. <laughs> I have oh. one in Wall Township and one in Red Bank, New Jersey as well. So what what do people do on the West Coast if they've lost their hair or are losing their hair or have all of the problems? <laughs> I, have, to, yeah. I have wonderful people I can refer them to. I have a wonderful colleagues that I could actually refer them to. So uh, you obviously have a, a huge network, I'm ass- right? I'm assuming um, you're involved in all of these organizations, uh, both here and uh, actually not just here and in Canada, but also I see that in, in, uh, in Europe as well. Yes. Yes, it's all over, uh, all over Europe. There's a, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of areas. Like I said, if I, I have someone that comes to me or reaches out to me from another country, another, uh, it's just anywhere. I can uh, usually have someone to refer them to. I will always talk to them first. I will always give them that time, just like they were coming to me. I don't care who they're going to. I will always take the time and discuss their situation with them, and we would refer them to somebody that trusted someone that we know that would take good care of them. Um, when someone reaches us, we have them come in for a free consultation. We always do the free consultation because we want to let them explain their situation to us. We have a better idea what's going on and we can see them, feel them out, you know, and see, you know, really get to know them and understand what their needs are. Great. Danielle? Marzello Grillo, uh, a 20-plus year veteran of the hair loss industry and owner of Transitions Hair Solutions of New Jersey. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was a, a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Christine C. Forner. She's an MSW and author of Disassociation, Mindfulness, and Creative Meditations, Trauma-Informed Practices to Facilitate Growth. Uh, Christine has had more than 17 years of clinical experience working with individuals with trauma, PTSD, traumatic disassociation, and developmental trauma. She is in private practice at Associated Counseling in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and she has presented locally and internationally on issues of traumatic disassociation and mindfulness. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, uh, Christine. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Well, we're going to talk about your book, and I'd like to talk about it today in the context, of of course, of what's happening right now. Uh, You talk about specifically uh, PTSD, traumatic disassociation, developmental trauma, uh, and yeah. all of this is related to this, what's happening with this family separation and separating these yeah. immigrant children from their parents, o- over 2,300, uh, 2,300, maybe uh, even more. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a horrific situation. Obviously, you have a lot of insight in, into how this is go- traumatically affecting not only, obviously, the parents, but the children. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that... Um if if more was known what I know and what others in the field of complex trauma and dissociation know, if that was more commonly understood, um, the severity of the injuries that are happening to these kids would be really clearly understood. Well, that's what we should talk. So let's start with that. What does this all mean? Uh, putting it in layman's terms, you know, what are the consequences of separating these children and these babies from their their mothers and their fathers? Well, a, a way of looking at it is that we are sort of a three-brained creature or three-minded creature. We have our very primitive brain structure that's almost fully developed when we are little. This is It's sort of more of a reptilian and mammalian brain structure that's very instinctual, very reactive. 
Then we have, we grow a mind over time. It takes about 25 years to grow our mind. And that mind is based on the experiences of those first two brain structures. And the whole goal at those end of 25 years is to have that third mind, which is a mindful mind, a mind that can understand itself, know itself, um, be at one with its instinctual reactions and that reptilian and mammalian brain so that it can turn around and raise other brains that are able to go from this very primitive reptilian mammalian place to a very expansive, mindful human place. And so when you have a baby who is born, that baby body does not have a mind up until about the mind starts to grow somewhere around three, and that's just starting to grow. So in those first three years of life, that baby body is running off of human homo sapien instincts. These are instincts that are very, very old. They do not evolve very quickly or adapt really quickly. So every baby that's born comes out with this expectation that it's going to be in its natural habitat. And that natural habitat is being in small groups of people, being raised by uh, one or two or three, actually up to four adults, and is in a very familiar, safe environment where those adults are constantly, and I mean constantly, addressing the needs of that baby body. And if that baby body detects or has a felt sense that there's nobody around, that baby body very quickly goes into an emergency state. Things don't grow in an emergency state. Things do not expand in an emergency state. We are not curious. We are not compassionate. We are reactive. We are stuck in a state of freeze, which is the dissociation, or we're bouncing in between fight and flight and panic and freeze. And so what's happening to these kids is they're missing the thing that they need more than they need food, which is people. And if they don't get what they need, the, the consequences are lifelong, generationally long. Um, the genetics are going to be changing and the, the epigenetics are going to be changing in those baby bodies. And so not, not only is the damage being done to each one of these children, there's a generational damage that's, that, that likely will happen as well. One of the myths I think that you address in the book is that we say, well, children are resilient. They're resilient to change. They won't remember that this happened to them once things get, you know, once, let's say, hopefully, or if they ever do get back to their parents, uh, you know, they're only two, they're only three, they won't remember any of this. And that's simply a myth. That's simply not the case. It's 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 a lifelong traumatic uh, yes. Yes. impact on Everything themselves. Yes. Yeah, everything that happens in those first three years of life are the beginning foundations of everything else. And if you think about reading, right, none of us remember what it's like, or very few of us remember actually the day-in, the day-out experience we had learning to read. But all of those things that we learned in those first five years of life of learning to read, or even those first ten years of life, affect us to this day when we read. So everything is built upon everything else. So these kids are going to have a body memory or physical experiences of severe abandonment. And that body is going to be expecting that or, or prepared for that or dealing with that for the rest of its life. And when that body does that, it's in a state of emergency. And that's where um, in that state of emergency, we become very, um, we become very good victims or very good victimizers. Uh, I mean, we're really just perpetrating this cruelty on these. It's sort of hard to imagine that we are doing that, at least from mm. my perspective. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, and this is like an example, sort of, of what you're talking about. I was babysitting for my grandson for the day. He's two, very close to him, and I was putting him down for a nap, and he did not want to take a nap, and that was traumatic. Uh, not in the same kind of trauma that we're talking about. But the first thing he cries out is Mama Dada, Mama Dada, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did say, well, that's... They're not going to save you in this case because Grammy's here. But that, I mean, that's that's just a tiny little, you know, trauma that he's experiencing. And what's he going back to? Mama Dada, right? Well, I think if you look at trauma, not as an event, but as a reaction, um, it, it, it doesn't take much for children to move into the reaction of overwhelm or move into the reaction of not being able to help themselves. So when a traumatic event happens, 
everybody will have post-trauma symptoms. Everybody will either fight, flee, or dissociate because that's part of what our original neurobiology is. The, the part where it starts getting disordered is that you do not know how to be at one with the body while it works itself out after a trauma. So it gets stuck. So those felt feelings of overwhelm or that, that inability to calm oneself down is what creates these disorders or these trauma disorders. And it, if you, um, like children are unable to calm themselves down. They don't have enough information in their memory banks. They don't have enough experience. They don't have enough um, the capacity to regulate themselves or agency to um, calm themselves down. And they don't even have the structures to calm themselves down built yet. You know, when we say to ourselves when we're older, oh, my God, just calm down, that's a really super adult thing to say. That doesn't occur to kids because they don't have that brain structure in there yet. So it's so very easy for children to be traumatized versus adults. They're so much more sensitive than than adults are because they don't have any scaffolding. They don't have any um, experience. They don't have any internal structures that will regulate itself or normalize itself. Right. So they don't have, is that what we call self-soothing? I mean, that that takes a long time to develop, that ability to self-soothe? Yeah, you can't. Children who don't, aren't soothed by others will never learn to soothe. There's no such thing as self-soothing. There is um, coping. There is um, flipping into fight, flight, or freeze. And, and that's the part that I really specialize in is the freeze. Um, and not enough people know enough about freeze. But children because they can't run very well, because they don't fight very well, because they've got little tiny bodies that aren't very strong, their preferential place to go typically is freeze. And um, if a child is needing to self-soothe, they're actually self-coping, which isn't great. So what you're talking about is a child can't, obviously, can't run away, can't, like if they are... Uh, threatened or they feel danger, they can't mm-hmm. take care of themselves. So no. they go through the process. Is this what we're talking about that you discuss? Is disassociate? They disassociate. Disassociation yeah. is, is that what they do? Yeah, that's the um, dissociation. Really, is every every human body has it, or, or is a, is designed to have it. Um, and what dissociation does is it gives us. It's our last line of defense. So when, when we feel threat or when we feel danger uh, about really the, fa- the best thing the human body can do is just become invisible and do a hard freeze as the threat moves away and doesn't notice you. If that doesn't work, running or that fleeing or the felt feeling of anxiety, which often is a fleeing, um, comes in typically, it, you know, it's sort of the next preferred place because if you can run away from the danger, you're going to safety, not staying in the danger. Fighting is a little bit more risky, but it still has agency. It still has action with it. If those don't work, or if we're really little, panic will be the felt feeling of panic. It's reaching out to the next. So it's a very primitive reaching that takes over. Those are all active defenses, and and those are sort of preferred because you can get away. But if you're so close to danger, or if there is nowhere else to go, or if you have no other option, then a freeze comes in, and it sort of blankets over those fight-flight. So it's more powerful than than the fight-flight or the PTSD. And it tries to stop all action so that we play dead. And that's to preserve our life, that is to inform predators that we're dead and not good, or it's holding on until someone can come and save us. As you're describing it, it sounds like women who are, when when I've talked to women who have been physically abused or raped uh, on a continual basis, that that's what they do. They, yeah, they, they, yeah, that that's the mechanism that's used if they can't get away from their perpetrator. Yeah. There's a really famous um, study that was done by a woman named Ruth Lanius and Paul Fruin, um, and they studied the, they examined, they did an fMRI of the brain when it was in, uh, of a person who, who did do this freeze, and then you can see it's like a total white brain. There's not a lot of electrical currency happening in that brain, and it's one of the most um, shocking images of what actually happens when we freeze. Things turn off. There's no notion. And also what happens when we dissociate, there's sort of this command inside to scatter information so things don't connect. So um, putting 
logic and reason with feelings doesn't happen. So people can't make meaning out of what's going on when they're dissociating. They are completely at um, the mercy of a very strong primitive mechanical mechanism. And the body's doing that because it figured this is our only way we're going to survive. And chances are they're pretty right. What about these children as you see it, as as you see this whole thing unfolding? What, 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 is there any hope for any of them or what would you do or how do you, I mean, you, in terms of your knowledge, obviously your expertise, what would you do? How would you help? Well, well, what I would do is I would try and get them back with their parents as quick as possible. And I would try to support those parents as much as possible. Um, If that's not an option, then um, moving those children to the safest environments possible. So environments where there is lots of adults or attending adults, adults who are trauma-informed, adults who are aware of the severity of the um, neuroelectrical, neurochemical cascade that's happening inside that child's body and working very hard on showing that child, giving them the outcome that, that, the, that they are safe, that there are adults looking out for them, that they're being watched over, protected, seen, heard, and cared for. Well, in reality, in this situation with these immigrant children being put into, I, um, I mean, I refer to them as yes. childhood, child internment camps, uh, yes. that doesn't seem to be, we're not, I mean, that seems to me what we're doing, kind of the opposite of what you're suggesting. Yes. Um, the risk that um, the, the risk of these kids uh, developing all sorts of, um, not just mental illness, but their chances of addiction goes way up high. Their chances of um, being uh, violated goes way high. The chances of becoming violent are way high. The chances of them getting autoimmune diseases, heart diseases, liver diseases, all of those things are skyrocketing every day that these kids are being left alone unattended. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an accident that can be prevented by going in and ensuring that these kids are either back with their parents and care is provided. Are you personally involved in any of the, uh, I guess, the activities or some of the things to, or some of, I guess, uh, uh, some of the, I don't exactly know what it is, organizations, or are there groups that people or individuals can be a part of or participate in to get involved with these children um, or any that you're aware of? There is, um, there's a group there's one group that I'm aware of. So I'm, I'm also part of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Um, I'm, the, I'm the incoming president. And so what we're trying to do is educate as much as we can that this is incredibly serious, that this is very damaging, and that if something isn't done as soon as possible, the repercussions can last these poor children and their children and many other children um, generations to come. But there are also um, lots of groups. There's um, law firms that are heading down to try and help uh, process things as quick as possible. Um, In those groups, if you're a registered social worker or a therapist, um, you can be given permission to go with the lawyers. I don't remember the name of the lawyer at this moment, Um, but I'm sure if you Google... um, Legal teams heading down to Texas, you'll likely find some of the legal teams that are heading down to Texas. As far as I know, because I'm up in Canada, so I'm like really one step removed, but as far as I'm aware, there are, there are other there are groups, like um, on-the-ground groups gathering right now and being allowed to go in and uh, see if they can help these kids get them back with their parents. But, you know, I'm, like I, even my information is watered down quite a bit. Yeah. I think one of the attorneys, uh, oddly enough, or I don't know if it's odd, but he's had a, a lot of press, so people do know who he is, but the attorney for Stormy Daniels uh, is now representing these these families and these parents, and what's happened is a lot of other law firms, as I understand it, have teamed up with, with him and his law firm, yeah. 
as you're discussing. And I would, you know, if you're if yeah. you're wanting to go on the ground and help, I would be phoning them because, it, as far as I know, um, and like I said, I am so watered down. I'm hearing information coming from like other listservs that I belong to. Um, so I'm hearing information coming from people who are on the front line. And as far as I know, legal teams are the only ones that are really being allowed in there. And um, you can assist the lawyers that are heading down there. So, uh, you know, we only have a few minutes left, so I just want to get back to uh, the mm-hmm. book. Uh, because this book is yeah. not simply for... Uh, professionals, it's for professionals as well as lay people. We, it's, it's some, yeah. I tried to make it as easy to read as possible. Some of the science behind this is pretty complicated. And um, really to get a good understanding of what's happening, we need to have an understanding of the, our own neurobiology. What I really tried to do is I tried to um, explain what mindfulness is from a attachment perspective, from a homo sapien sapien perspective, what it actually might be doing uh, neurobiologically inside of us. And then I move into how mindfulness gets usurped by dissociation because dissociation doesn't want us to be mindful. Mindfulness is not helpful when we're in, in a state of emergency. And mindfulness is about being aware. Dissociation is about being unaware. Dissociation comes with um, anesthetizing chemicals. And so when we start to, if, we, if you're chronically dissociating or you can start to understand that you dissociate, you can't just dive into mindfulness because mindfulness brings us knowledge. These things that, that, are, um, that created the dissociation in the first place, they do need to be processed inside of us. We do need to know what it is. We do need to feel these things, and that's what mindfulness helps us do. But if you're dissociating an awful lot, it's kind of like diving into the deep end without any, without knowing how to swim. So I really talk about how to respect dissociation and how to help people who dissociate begin to slowly experience the tolerance of their own inner worlds so that eventually they become mindful and really start to understand why I am the way that I am, why I've done what I've done, why I feel what I feel. And when we know that, it brings agency and it brings a lot of peace in the end. So awareness, I, as I'm listening to you, that's the word that keeps coming up. We have to be aware. And then we get to the point where we can be mindful. Uh, and what are the, all the benefits of being mindful when we were able to get to that point? We, well, when we study people who have um, done a lot of mindfulness, we notice that um, they have very strong front brains. So they have a lot of gray matter, so which means they have a lot of connective tissue, which, right, if you look at the brain like a muscle, even though it doesn't work like a muscle, but if we just use that example, the more that you use mindfulness, the more you exercise the, the front brain structures. And the, the medial prefrontal cortex and the insulin, a bunch of other brain structures, they are designed at regulating our fear and other people's fear, so calming people down, but also helping people move up. So, you know, getting people motivated. It's in charge of regulating our emotions. So being able to have emotional intelligence. These are my feelings. These are why I have my feelings. I know how to communicate with my feelings. And feelings are really part of our relation, like being in a relationship with other people. Basically, we do this, we communicate through feeling. And mindfulness helps us understand it and and be one with them rather than um, getting rid of them or dismissing them or denying them or or, um, being afraid of them. So this helps us manage grief. This helps us manage pain. This helps us manage loss. Um, Mindfulness also helps us update old files. So if something happened to us when we were little, mindfulness helps us realize, okay, maybe two feet of water wasn't so scary or was really scary at two. It's not so scary anymore. It helps us um, uh, take a mental pause. It helps us understand our insight. It helps us understand our intuition. So it really helps us understand those back brain processes that we're born with. It really does, it's, it's where empathy comes from. And empathy is quite an intimate experience. Being able to feel what other people feel and know that's their feeling and not my feeling. Because empathy are, really comes through a felt feeling first rather than a thought. So we feel what other people feel. Mindfulness is the brain that helps us differentiate between others and, and ourselves. So that when we're super upset because our child is super upset, we can calm ourselves down so we can calm down our child. 
Well, it seems to me that many of these politicians that we're talking about right now have not reached the stage of mindfulness so that they can reach the, uh, or understand the feeling of empathy. Uh, would, yeah. I, would you say, yeah, so yeah. that, that and, and they're creating policies, with not necessarily in Canada, but here in the United States, that are absolutely the opposite of coming from individuals or adults who have a mindful brain. Yeah, and I think once you really understand that mindfulness really is the brain that is about grander human relationships and grander human connections to yourself and to other people, um, we become very compassionate when we experience a lot of mindfulness to ourselves and to other people. And the more that you sort of read my book, the more you start to realize how mindless most of us are. And the goal of in all of us could be uh, mindfulness, but really what hinges on that is a safe childhood. I think one of the things, though, and I think this is a good uh, a plus, um, obviously, besides your book, there is more that this word mindfulness does keep popping up, even in, in popular culture. And even uh-huh. you see physicians or doctors maybe who are traditionally conservative sort of recommending uh, doing uh, exercises in the morning when you wake up that would promote mindfulness, you know, two or three minutes a day, those kinds of things. Does that work? It really it does, except for it really needs to be trauma-informed. So when we recommend anything to people, like if you have a dissociative disorder, just jumping into mindfulness is too much, too soon, too hard. Most people won't do it because it, 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 it hurts. Right, it it brings up, it can re-trigger people. So, um, if we can teach people that mindfulness is a goal and how to get to that goal, respecting the neurobiology of that client or that person, respecting where they're at, and honoring where they're at, and and respecting the dissociative processes, that um, you know is really grossly misunderstood. Most people assume when you say dissociation, they think about multiple personality disorder, and that's that's one part, but it hasn't been called that in like 20 years, um, almost 25 years. It's called something else. But it, it's part of what happens when, um, if a child is constantly in a dissociative state, parts of the self cannot meet together to grow a, an identity. It's all fragmented, and, and identity still wants to grow. So um, when we really understand the power of dissociation, we can help people slowly begin a tolerance of being mindful so eventually we can teach them how to be mindful. So, in other words, and we have a minute left, so uh, we need to read your book first to really have an awareness or of understanding where all of this is coming from, and then we can get to the point where, where we become aware, mindful, empathetic. But it is a process. It's not just something yeah. you necessarily jump into. So the title of the book is Disassociation, Dissociation, Mindfulness and Creative Meditations, Trauma-Informed Practices to Facilitate Growth. And the author is Christine Forner, MSW. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.